Hi, everybody. It's good to be back. Good to be back. Yeah. Um, I had a remembrance of Adam. Um, I started in the ministry in 1976, so it's been 42 years. But I, there's always little games that stick out, little experiences that you seem to remember over all the thousands of things that happened. And one of them, when I saw Adam last night at dinner, I remembered immediately a game we played up in the north. And... Uh, we had to go to the, across the river where we weren't supposed to go. There's NPA territory, which at that time was the communist rebel movement. And so you didn't go into those territories. But I thought we'd give it a try because there was a pastor there and he begged us to go in. So we gave it a try and we drove in and we were playing the game and they were a really good team. And they were beating us. And uh, we don't lose very often. And so I looked at the guys. I said, you guys, we're kind of desperate. We're from behind now. So you can start shooting it up from three. So the only way to catch up is to make a bunch of threes. And it just so happened that Adam started throwing up a bunch of threes and they all went in. Yeah. And we won. I remember that. And But what was even more important that night is we won the game, but a man came up to me. Um, and I don't know who he was. He just came up, very friendly Filipino. He says, Tom, they're waiting to ambush you on the way home to rob you. I said, who is? He said, I just can tell you, you need to go home, get back on the other side of the river, don't hang around after the game. Um, if you left early, they might not be ready, you know, to ambush. I said, okay. So I packed up everybody, Adam and Steve and Toto and everybody. We got in the Jeep and we headed back for the river. And sure enough, we headed down the road. And I told Steve to tell the driver to turn off the lights in the Jeep because there's no overhead lights out in the province. So it's real dark. So you couldn't actually see our Jeep going down the road. And sure enough, a little ways down the road, I looked over and some lights went on and this jeep pulled out and followed us. But the problem was they couldn't go any faster than we could because they had the same kind of jeep. <laughs> and we made it all the way back over the river. And I don't think the guys probably thought too much of it, but when you're the leader of the team and you know what goes on out there, you feel it's really a blessing. When, and I still don't know who that guy was who gave me the warning. You know, it's nice of him to say, here's what's going to happen. I think sometimes we meet angels don't know about it, you know? Hebrews 13.1. Um, one of the things I love about missions, um, and I've been a missionary 42 years, is because I value people and value people's souls. And that's what missionaries do. They love to win people to Christ, to influence people to the kingdom, no matter what type of work they do. The idea is we want to get more people into the kingdom of God. And sometimes when I look at the values I see in my country here when I'm home, versus what I think about when I'm on the field, it shocks me. Like, just lately, I don't know if you recognize it, but um, there was a guy named Enzo Ferrari, and he was a um, Grand Prix owner, and they ran the Grand Prix back in 1948, 1950, 52. Ferrari dominated the world of Grand Prix sport. And he was obsessed with having the fastest car all the time. And he had three of his drivers die within three years. They were champions, but they all died. And his own, his own quote was, yeah, but we did become champions. And sometimes what we value, and, and we've got to double guess what we value, don't we? We've got to think it over again. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, you might have saw it in the paper, they sold a 1962 Ferrari GTO 250 for $48.4 million. Maybe you didn't hear that. <laughs> 48 $48,400,000 they sold it at auction 
of 62 Ford. Now, who would buy a car like that? Now, I might be being silly because I don't have, like cars that much. I just want them to drive me places. But that's overvaluing something. Wouldn't you say that's a guess? That's a little overvalued. Well, compare that with this next story. Um, Tom Petty's Heartbreakers. Some of you remember Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? Remember him? Well, they were in L.A. one year, and they were preparing for a concert, and then they were going to go on tour. So they had it all set, all their guitars and all their equipment out on the stage, and they went for a lunch break. And they had a local security company watching over the equipment and stuff while they, while they were in town. But when they came back from break, five of Tom's personal guitars were missing. Somebody had uh, walked off with them, nicked off with them. Turns out it was a guy named Daryl. And Daryl was one of the security guards hired to control and watch over this. So they, what they really needed was security to watch the security. <laughs> but the funny part of the story was this Daryl had these five guitars and then he, he took one guitar and headed down to the pawn shop there in L.A. and he proceeded to pawn it off and he argued with the guy for a while and he walked out thinking he'd just done great and he had $250 in his pocket. And uh, <laughs> the story is then he got caught, of course, and they got all the guitars back, but the idea that paying $250 for that guitar that he got, now that was undervalued because they said the total package worth of the five guitars was just over $100,000. Now that's a bad move. What was that guy thinking, you know? So you get, you get different extremes here, don't you? He undervalued what he had, and he was wrong to be taking it. But I do know this. If you undervalue something that you have, when you don't recognize the true value of what you have in your possession, you will always get far less from it than it is really worth. Doesn't it make sense? When you don't understand the true value of it. And when I look at that, I think of it spiritually for me. When people don't value or understand what Jesus has actually done for them, and they undervalue that, they never appreciate and get what they really could out of that relationship. Jesus paid the ultimate price in history. <laughs> no car, no yacht, nothing could ever compare. Rolex watch, anything you can get up to, any fantastically paid for thing can never match what Jesus paid for each one of you. And when, you know what it means? It means he values us. He values us that much that he would give his life. That's a value we want to share with the whole world. We want people to know that. It says in um, Matthew... Chapter 6, excuse me, yeah, I guess I don't have that, here we go, Matthew 6, it says, uh, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where, le where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your, heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, that's a powerful verse from Jesus, isn't it? In other words, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will follow too. So some people, it's 1962 Ferrari is where their heart is and they'll pay $48 million for it. And what is the treasure in your life? What do you treasure most? And for me, and I think you'll, you'll know our missionaries, we treasure Christ and we treasure souls that can be led to Christ. And that's why we do what we do and for you to send us is a privilege.
to have on our mind as a church and missionaries that we value people first. And we value our relationship with Christ, sorry, first. And then we value people getting to know him because of what it meant to us. I was in Eastern Europe just a couple months back. And um, I, went, I went to a place where they have the Olympic sports um, college, university. So to get there, you have to be the highest ranking athlete in your field. And then you go there and you get training to make the Olympic team or be on the Olympic team. And they had a hundred of the top athletes in the world. They had them sitting there and they asked me to come in and speak to them. So I came into them and I thought, what am I going to say to all these Olympic athletes, you know? And one of them asked me, um, because coach had informed them already, they said, what was it like to score as many points as you scored? And so I ran into this today uh, before I came down to see you. This is an old, this is an old stat sheet from 1976 and my name's at the top of the list you can't see it's too small do you notice anything else about this what color is it this used to be white yeah this this used to be white look at this yellow why is it yellow because it's old so in 1976 I led the nation in scoring and at that time in my life I thought that was the most important thing in my life that was what I wanted to do and now I look at it and I go, it's a piece of yellow paper worth absolutely nothing. And the only reason you know about it because I'm telling you about it. <laughs> we, are, we value stuff that's transient, don't we? We value stuff that's, that moths can eat and thieves can destroy. Um, so when I was in Eastern Europe and I spoke at this group, I told them about that. And I showed them that and I said, you can enjoy your sport and do the best you can at it, but nothing like in sport will ever compare to having a relationship like with Christ. That treasure is greater than any other treasure you can have. And so, surprisingly, because they were dominated by the communists for many years, so it's not a spiritually um, intense country. But you know what they are? They are interested. They are interested. I kept asking the kids who came up and talked to them, can I ask why you're so interested? They said, why? I said, well, sometimes in the States I don't get the same interest. And they said, because we're wondering what we missed. All of those years, you get the Bible, you get to talk about religion, you get to talk about God. We didn't. State was God. The state, the government was. That's a big warning, isn't it? Yeah. And they said, but we're interested. We'd like to at least have the option of looking at it. And so I shared with them. The next night, a bunch of those kids followed me to the next meeting and to the next meeting. I was doing five or six meetings a day in Eastern Europe. Universities, um, uh, house churches, um, grade schools, the library, museums. They took me everywhere to speak. And I would just, whatever I could do when I'd speak at a place, I'd try to talk about what they brought me there for. And then I'd talk to G about Jesus. <laughs> It's hard to go to a museum when you're not a real smart guy and figure out how you relate museum to Jesus. But we got it done, you know. And the response was always so positive and it was the same thing. They were interested because they had not been allowed to be interested in soul. It was something they feel they missed out on. So one of the girls that came up, she's, her name is Dasha. And, and I met her the first night and I recognized her because her English was so good. I kept thinking, you know, I speak several languages, so when I'm in a country and somebody speaks English and it's not their language, I compliment them on because it's a hard thing to learn a language. And I said, Dashi, you've been to three meetings. She goes, you've been counting. I said, you sat there, there, and then you sat over there the third meeting. Wow. And I said, yeah, you're important to me. What is it that you have a question on? She says, the treasure. 
I'm in interested in the treasure. I said, okay, what kind of treasure? No, the treasure of eternal life in Jesus Christ. You talked about the first night. I said, well, you just need to know him as your personal savior. He has to be the most important thing in your life, though. What do you do? She says, I'm a swimmer. I said, have you had much success swimming? And the girls around her started giggling and punching her, you know. I said, what's the secret? She said, well, yeah, I've done okay. I did win the European Championship. So now I got an athlete in front of me that's done far more than I ever did in an athlete, and I thought I did above average, you know. I said, wow, that's fantastic. And they kept nudging her. I said, there's more. And she said, yeah, I, I, I'm, the reigning, I'm the reigning world champion. That means you're the best in the world. And I went, wow. And they kept punching her. And I said, what else can you have done that... You were in the Olympics. She said, I want a gold medal in the Olympics. <laughs> now, here's a person in my world of sports that cannot get any better than that. I didn't qualify. I tried for the Olympics. Didn't qualify in running. I, I missed it by a few. And in basketball, I just missed it by a few players. So I know the part about not getting to the Olympics. To me, the gold medalist always gives me a tickle. Any medalist or anybody who makes an Olympic team. And I said, well, that's really something. She said, but it's nothing compared to what you're offering. How about that? I love it when my job is easy. <laughs> you know? And she prayed right there with the other girls and she came to Christ. I just got an email from her last night after I talked to a group here. When I went to bed, I read it. And she just read me an email about what she's doing. And she says, you've given me motivation. Christ has given me motivation to get back in the pool and work hard again. Because what had happened is she had won all of these things at a young age. And she was figuring, there's got to be more than this. Is this it? And what she valued, she realized was important, but wasn't near what she really needed to value, which was a relationship with Christ and eternal life. It makes sense. It's pretty simple as missionaries. That's where we look at. We value that more than anything else. In a country in the United States where we value a lot of different things, it's nice to get back onto that point, isn't it? Um, Second Kings, there's a good story I want to tell you. In Second Kings... And it kind of gives you an idea, too, about value and, and about what we see and what we don't see. Second Kings chapter 6. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? You know, all this leaking that's going on in our government and everything. They were having kind of the same problem here. The king of Syria was trying to overtake Israel. But every time he mounted an offensive, they knew where he was coming, when he was coming, and how many they were coming. And they kept failing. So he came to the conclusion that somebody in his kingdom, somebody in his advisors, was a spy. And so he said to him, Show me who is Azazus for the king of Israel. And, he, and, this, and the, they said, And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your very bedroom. Now that's a good spy. I mean, can you imagine? So what he's saying is, the guy that's killing us is the prophet of Israel because he knows what you're talking about even in your own bedroom in private. So picture it in today's time. Israel, um, Elisha would be like a, one of those comic, Marvel comic book characters with superpowers. Or he would be a super counter-terrorism expert. 
Or even he could do the equal of a counter-terrorist drone. You know, the drones, they fly in there and get all that. That's what he was. He was, he was just a man blessed by God. And he kept taking care of Israel. And so it makes sense. They said, well, who do we got to eliminate? We got to eliminate Elisha. And he said, okay, go and seek Elisha where he is, that I may send and seize him. Behold, he is in Dotham. It was, it was told to him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. <laughs> and they came by night and they surrounded his place. I mean, do you think it takes a great army to get one guy? They, they must have been pretty scared of Elisha. I mean, he must have been pretty impressive. We sent a whole lot of people to get bin Laden, didn't we? Over a lot of years. It was, was it worth it? Yes, for him, he thought this was worth it too. Get him. We need to get this guy to win. So when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, this is the servant of Elisha, and he went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, and here's what the poor guy's servant, Elisha. Now, now put your place in, in, I mean, put yourself in his place. He's the servant of Elisha. All he does is take care of the prophet. It's a great honor. He gets him his tea and everything. He's got him all some bread ready to eat. And then he goes to check out the nice weather, what it's going to be today. And he opens up the door and there's a great army surrounding their place. Chariots and soldiers and all. And he goes, uh-oh. <laughs> he knows they're after them. And there's two of them. Him and Elisha. And he wishes right now he wasn't the man, uh, servant of Elisha. So what does he do? Closes the door and puts the chair up under it. <laughs> not going to help. No. He goes back to the master. He says, Master. What does he say? He's panicked. He says, My gosh, Master. Um, alas, my master, what shall we do? And his master said, Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Gosh, I love that story. If All missionaries and Christians should know this, but missionaries really know this. All your missionaries know this. I can guarantee you. When we get in trouble, when we're fearful, we know one thing. There are more for us than are against us. In my deepest places, in jails and prisons, out in the provinces sick and stuff, I always knew God was greater than the thing that was against me. That he was, he was providential. And it gives us hope. Always gives us hope. So to teach his servant, he said to... Um, he said, Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, would you please open the eyes of my servant so he may see what I know is there? So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what happened? They were surrounded, but they were also surrounded by God. There's a song I love. I've been hearing lately on the radio. It says, this is how I fight my battles. Have you heard that one? Um, it may, be, it may seem like we're surrounded, but we're surrounded by God. He looked out and he saw these glorious angels and chariots on fire. Can you imagine what he saw? Do you, what do you think the servant felt? He felt safe. And he should feel safe. Here's the question. Do you think those angels were only there when Elisha told them to look? Do you? No, they were there all the time. He just happened to get a glimpse of them now. And it's the same with us. We, we go about our days and we drink our, what do you call that place where you get your coffee? Starbucks. Starbucks. I don't drink coffee because I don't. You drink your, a lot of you drink Starbucks. You check your emails. You're on your phone getting your news or talking to somebody. Oblivious to what's going on in the spiritual world around us. I'm the same way. Don't we do it every day? 
We're just oblivious. And all this stuff is going on, the Bible says, around us. And all we need every once in a while is a glimpse of it. Just a glimpse of it could encourage us along. And this guy got a glimpse of it. And of course, the rest of the story is fantastic. But that's the part I want you to realize. We need to realize that there are things that are transient. In fact, where did I find that word? Transient. Uh, just a second. It's in First Thessalonians. No, it's not. It's in... Where's that transit, Adam? <laughs> Did I tell you you're one of the five men who basically affected my life the greatest? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sorry to do that to you. That's not nice, Adam. Uh, oh, here it is. Listen to this. It says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's great, isn't it? So the, the most important things are actually the things that we don't see. And the things that we see are not even as important as we make them to be because we can see them. Does that make sense? I do it all the time. Transit. I'm a basketball player, so I had to look up transit. And I looked up, and you know what it means? Short time. Quickly. Done over. Very limited. Nothing to it. Transit. I want to invest my life in treasure that's long-lasting. And what does God say long-lasting treasure is? Well, Paul said in Thessalonians... Whenever you preach, don't try to do too many verses. It always messes you up. <laughs> this is in Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 19. Here's what it says. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. You are our treasure. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you and me. What is the treasure? It's people that we lead to Christ. Where's my treasure? It's in the Philippines. It's in Eastern Europe. It's in the Middle East. It's all the places I've traveled to share Christ and someone has come to the Lord. Someone was reminding me today, uh, I think it was Ken, that I wasn't very good at leading a lot of people to the Lord, but I was very good at leading one person at a time to the Lord. That's a true statement, isn't it, Ken? Well, I didn't say not very good. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I might have said it wrong. The idea was... Luis Palau and Billy Graham and many men can, can take a crowd and win many. But I always worked one person at a time, one relationship at a time. But it is funny how those build up into real treasure. Because they touch somebody's life and they touch somebody's life. I just got an email this morning. I love this email stuff. I get this phone everything's on it. Everybody all around the world can contact me all the time. And I got a contact from um, Bernie Carpio. Bernie Capio was in prison with me. He was very sad and distraught and depressed and he was very thin. They don't feed you in prison in the Philippines and they don't treat you medically. He was going down the wrong road. Thankfully for me, I had millions of friends all over the world. They just sent food to me. Somehow they'd get food to me. So I was able to share my food with other people, which gives you a friendship in jail. And, and Bernie, he ate some of the food. I said, man, you got to eat. You're thin. He said, yeah, I don't... What happened to you? He said, I don't know what I did. They just collected me and they wanted me to pay money. I said, yeah, that happened to me too. I said, uh, but we got to get through this. I said, where's your family? He said, I haven't seen them in eight months. 
I said, do you have a picture? And he pulled out a little picture. He said, this is my family, two boys and his wife. Well, can't you have them come visit the prison? They do have visiting hours. Well, no, they live too far, many islands away. We don't have any money to have them come. So I got Karen at the next visiting. I said, you find this person, this lady and these two kids at this island. You send the money, pay for the tickets. You bring them to the prison to visit Carpio, Sergeant Carpio. He was a police officer. And they did. Now, I want to tell you treasure is when he came through that, they came through that gate to get checked to come into visiting and he saw them. Now that's treasure. And he looked around and right away he looked at me and I went, (laughs) (laughs) sometimes you do something, you just do the right thing for the right people at the right time, don't you? And Karen and I, we just sat there and giggled. We didn't say, we just watched them. Their boys couldn't let go of their dad. They were hugging them and they hadn't seen them in eight months. And he gave his life to Christ. It's not surprising. And so did she and so did the boys. And now he's free. His wife's studying to be a doctor. Life is very good for them. But at the time, it was the bottom of the bottom for him. You know what he said to me? Tom, I forgot to tell you something. He said, I said, what? I trusted you from the beginning. I said, why would you trust me? I'm in here for all these horrible crimes too, 25 to life. He said, because I know you. I watched you play. Do you remember Boy Carpio? I said, yeah. He was my teammate three years for champions. We were champions two years with Crispy. He said, that's my uncle. Isn't it a small world? (laughs) Now he's going to go to his uncle. And he's going to talk to his uncle as well. And then he's going to go to somebody else and somebody else. What is treasure? You are treasure. It says in Thessalonians, the people that we win to Christ are treasure. Is a GTO treasure? It is, because I would sell that thing in a minute and you think the missions I would do with $48 million? It all depends on how you look at what you think treasure is and how it can be used. Is this thing any good? It was for a lot of years, because for a lot of years people said, and he led the nation in scoring because it's a big deal. And I thought, you know, that was 20 years ago. When are you going to quit introducing me like that? (laughs) But sometimes people think that's the most important thing. It's not. It's just one thing along the way. But if it can help you, to have a platform to share Christ. Now it's worth something, isn't it? So with missions. Um, we had a house in, in, in Manila and it was up in the foothills. And so, beautiful. Um, we were at the top of one of the foothills and we overlooked Manila. So we didn't have to be in all of the smog and all of the dirt and all of the problems and the crime of Manila. We just could watch it from afar. And when the lights went on at night, it looked like a golden, beautiful, silver-lit city. You knew what it was when you went down in the day. But that night, it looked beautiful. The only problem was we were too far away from the city for security. We had to provide our own security. Even if you called the policeman up where we lived, nobody did that because they would come check out your house and then they would come back later to rob you. And I'm sorry to say, but that's just how it was. And I love all my Filipino people, but there's a few bad elements. And I've experienced it. So we got robbed one time. The church might, now I don't think you'd remember, it was before I was coming to this church. But they came, they sprayed something through the window. And it was some kind of a, a, like a chloroform or something to knock you out. And so we had the windows open, the fans going so hot in the Philippines, and they just blew it in the fan, went on Caroline, out. We slept for like 14 hours. We woke up and Karen hit me, she said, man, you got to get going. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Wow, we never sleep that late. I feel like I've been drugged. And she said, me too. And she looked over and she said, what did you do with my ring and my watch? So 
said, babe, I never touched your ring and your watch. She goes, Tom, my ring, my watch were right there last night. And something in me went, uh-oh. And I looked over and my wallet and ring, my watch and ring weren't there either on my bedstand. So I got up and I left our room and I looked, went into a house that was completely empty. They knocked us out. They took everything we had. They even took the 15 um, pair of basketball shoes that I had brought from the States, size 13 and a half. There's not a lot of Filipinos that wear 13 and a half. And so I kept thinking, one of these days, I'm going to find that guy wearing those shoes. He's going to stick out like a sore thumb. 15 pairs they took. My goodness. Anyway, we were, isn't that, we were new missionaries. We hadn't been there a year on the field. You know, and, and this sometimes sends people home. A lot of people go, you, they, you can go home if you get mad enough. If you don't understand that God surrounds us. We got surrounded by bad people, but still God surrounds them also. And he surrounds us. We weren't hurt, were we? Not a hair on our head was hurt. That's the first thing Karen said. She said, it hurts the things I lost because she likes the memories from home, being in another country. But she said, Tom, we weren't hurt at all. They didn't even touch us. And we thanked the Lord for that. We told everyone back home what had happened. And within a month, they sent money and everything, anything you need to refill the house. Well, why refill the house so that they can come do it again? <laughs> so we thought, what is it that we really treasure? What is it that's really important? And you might think about this being an American sometimes. It hurts, but you might think about it. Um, we thought anything that doesn't help us serve the Lord in missions is not really worth having around. The basic necessities is enough. Now, we prayed. I put bars on the windows. And I decided I would be more cautious. And I began to wake up every night at 2 a.m. in the morning. Because robbers in the Philippines always come at 2 a.m. I don't know why they come at 2 a.m., but they do. So I wake up at 2 a.m. and I go and look and make sure there's nobody bothering my house. And you know, they started to wait for me out there, a group of about six or eight men. We would cut our lawn back to about 50 meters all the way around the house to keep the snakes back so you could see them in the yard and kill them so you didn't want to brush all the way up to your house. Makes sense. You guys would understand that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, and, but the other thing is the fence is right there 50 yards out and I would look out and I could see them out there. And they were smoking cigarettes. and It's like they weren't hiding. Because they knew I couldn't call the police for help. So they knew it's you against them. That's a very frightening thing for missionaries when they realize they have put themselves in danger to serve the Lord. And we all do. Every missionary does. They don't even know the danger they're in half the time. You saw the pastor who just came back from Turkey. What a blessing. Did anyone see that? Prayed with the president. Prayed over the president. Oh my goodness. I got to pray over presidents before. It's the greatest honor, but I didn't get to do it on national TV. Wow, what a blessing. I couldn't believe it. But we all put ourselves in a little danger to work, and that's part of serving the Lord in the countries you go to in another culture. So I had a bat, and I held this bat, and I would sit. At 2 a.m., I'd get up, and I'd go sit by the big window where they broke in before, and I'd tap the bat on the bars. <laughs> and they could hear it. I said, I'm still here, you guys. And they would yell back to me in Tagalog, Nandito parin kami. We are still here also, Joe. <laughs> so I kept tapping the bat. And here's how we can fool ourselves and deceive us. I thought I was scaring these guys. I thought that they were not coming in because Tom had his bat. He's a big bad guy. We can fool ourselves a lot. But I kept tapping. Years went by. Do you know after people prayed for us, after that first robbery, people prayed for us, we were in that house for 21 years. We never got robbed again. 
No one ever came in. And I thought it was because of me and my back. <laughs> the problem was, Karen said, well, how can you think that? I go, what do you mean? She goes, you're not here half the time. <laughs> she had a point. And then I thought, my gosh, she stays here by herself. Well, I go away for three or four weeks at a time with basketball teams to do missionary work. And then I come back and no one ever came in that house. And you know what else? She was never afraid. People ask her all the time, weren't you afraid? And she said, I guess I was too dumb to be afraid. No, she was too spiritually in tune to be afraid. She felt the Lord would take care of it and that was how it was going to work. I thought I was doing it. What a joke. So here's the final thing. I won some guys to Christ in my neighborhood. The, down in the squatters area. I'd go down there, play basketball with them, um, take care of some of their prescriptions and got to be friends and some came to Christ. And I won a couple guys to Christ and they came to me and, Uncle Tom, we have to tell you something. We have to confess our sins. I said, no, that's why we have Jesus. You can just confess unto Jesus. You don't have to... No, we have to tell you. I said, if it'll make you feel better. But you know you can go to Jesus. Yes, but we want to tell you. I said, okay, tell me. We were the ones that robbed your house. <laughs> I said, why, why would you tell me that? Because we're afraid God is going to hold us, hold us accountable for robbing your house. And I, man, I wanted to sock him, you know. I said, what'd you do with all my shoes? They said, we went to the PBA with all the professional players. And then we sold them to all the top, the guys that were 6'7 and 6'6 and the biggest Filipinos. I said, you turkeys, you took my shoes. Anyway, I said, but you never came in again. They said, that's true. I said, did you ever come back again? Tom, we were out there many times. You were tapping your back, tapping your back. And I said, you're making fun of me. Yes. Why are you mocking me? Because you think tapping the bat that we were afraid of you. I said, well, what are you afraid of? We're afraid of your guards. Now, I'm not the only missionary that has stories like this. If you're blessed, every missionary in the field in danger gets these stories. But I want to tell you mine and Karen's. There's a reason we never got robbed again. Is because we had God surrounding us. I said, tell me about these guards. They said, every time we came, we might miss a few nights, but then we'd come, they'd be there. And they were big. I said, what did they look like? I don't know, they, kinda, they were like white. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a good biblical story, isn't it? <laughs> I said, and they were there all the time. And that's why you're afraid. We weren't messing with those guys. Something frightened us about them. And the guys that became Christians said to us, after time in my Bible study, they'd say, Tom, can we tell our story? I said, tell your story, because then they learned that they think they were angels. So they would tell the story for me. One thing, thing about miraculous things is if you have a number of witnesses. I was in Israel, and I went to the place where he fed the 5,000. Do you know why that's such a famous story? Because he had 5,000 plus witnesses that says he did it. You know? The Israelis, and I went over there, they believe all the stories. They're not all committed to Christ, unfortunately, but they believe the stories. That's something, isn't it? What are the treasures? They never got robbed again. So when we left the house and Karen, we sold it to someone else, she told them, our house never has snakes and never has robbers. And the first week, the Frenches lived in our house. They got robbed and they had a snake in their house. He got trapped in the bathroom with a great big king cobra and the poor guy was up on top of the sink and it had a, he was, the snake was between him and the door and he yelled for hours until finally some men came and got a rope and got the thing out of there and then he called us right away Tom your wife told us I said you shouldn't have listened to my wife I will tell you we had snakes and we had robbers 
But we were surrounded by God, and so are you. Pray for protection. You cannot just count on the police or the government or these people. that they're gonna, You have to have God's anointing. Missionaries need him to be covering them. And that's why we come back. You say, well, I would never do that. Why, would, why are you doing that? Isn't it crazy? And we go, no, it's okay. Actually, it's quite adventurous, isn't it? Yeah, because we come back with stories like this. So, I have time for one more, don't I? Okay. I didn't ask what time. Sorry. I'll get going quickly. Psalm 37. Boy, I'm going to need a drink. If anybody has a drink, could I have a little drink? Just a little water. 37.4. 34. Bless you. Thanks. What's your name? Kyler. Thanks, Kyler. Thank you. Sorry. Oh, thank you. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces will shine. their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried out to the Lord and heard and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all his troubles. For the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. I'm telling you a story, but I got a Bible verse to back it up. It happens. And then it doesn't just happen to me. I heard these angel stories from my mentors in the field who taught me. The Schaefers and the Hardemans, people like that, whole singers. I, yeah, they told me the story. So when it happened, I said, well, it can happen to anybody. We went on an island, like the team I took with Adam. We took a basketball team. We went for four weeks. And in four weeks, 30, we played 93 games. That's a lot of games. So you're playing two or three games a day. And we love it. We're not complaining. We love it, don't we, Adam? It's great fun. We're in shape, and, we, and there's nothing like burning your, your light out for Jesus, giving everything you can, your sweat and your efforts, and you're winning people to Christ or getting them the Bible study courses. Best time of my life, I can say that. I wish I could have stayed young and just keep playing games. I played over 2,000 and still could have done more if I, I just would have been healthier. But we were in a place way down south, a lot of trouble down south, but nobody bothered us. And I went to this island, and the missionary said, Tom, could you go to this island? It hasn't been reachable. Oh, that's what I like to do. Yeah, we go. What do you want me to do? Because, Tom, you play basketball. You do the unicycle show. You can make friends with them. And then once you get those friendships, we'll follow you up. I told you about this last night with, with the uh, Wycliffe missionaries I do this with. And they'd help with the literacy and, and the Bibles once I'd get in. So we went to this island. There were five main towns on the island. But then there were a lot of barrios. Barrios are little neighborhoods. And they have basketball courts. People don't have much in the Philippines, but they always have a basketball court. It may be dirt, maybe grass, up on a coconut tree, a wooden board with a ring that they've fabricated, but they have it. And we brought basketballs and we'd give one to every place. They would be thrilled. We'd play. So we played in this town, and the last night, we, they waited for the biggest town with the biggest gymnasium that could fit 5,000 people in it. And the mayor there was so excited, he was the top ranking political official on the whole island. And he wanted us to play him last. You know why? Because by then it was the end of the trip and everybody's legs were like jelly. And they figured we could beat the Americans. We'll get the strongest team and we'll beat them one time so we can say we beat the Americans. So that's okay. For me, that just makes it more exciting. More people coming for the real treasure. So we went, we're getting packed up to go down the road and it was getting dark. You know, it's going to be a night game because we played three that day. And 
this is uh, Lucille who ran the hostel we stayed on right on the beach. She said, oh, Tomas, I'm sorry you can't play tonight. I said, well, why can't we play tonight? Did they cancel? No, but they will because the electricity's out. I go, what do you mean? Electricity's out. And when electricity goes out, it goes out for days. Not just for an hour. So the typical, it's probably about 48 to 60 hours it'll be out at least. I said, well, let's go down there so that at least we, we, the mayor knows we would have come. You know, we wouldn't. So we drove down there, went to the mayor's office, and the candles were in the office because it's now getting dark, 7 o'clock. The game was supposed to be at 7 o'clock. And they're dis- discouraged, and they're going, oh, man, could you stay longer? I said, no, i got to get these guys back to fly back to America. I said, this is our last chance. I am so sorry. I said, but I'll pray. He said, you'll pray. I said, yeah, I'll pray. Maybe, maybe they'll turn on the lights early this time. And he looked at me and said, I never thought of that. And, and so we were just barely going out of his office, closing the mayor's office door, and the lights went on in the building. And the mayor said, Tomas, Tomas, Halika, come back, come back. So I came back. I said, he said, this doesn't happen. I said, should we take advantage of it? It might stay on. He said, just in case, I'll gather the people. I said, it's 7 o'clock, 7 o'clock. He said, no worry. 7.45, they had 5,000 people in the stadium. All they had to do was put a, uh, what do you call it? A loudspeaker on top of a car. Thank you. Thanks, son. And then drive around town and say, the game is on. Free. People rolling. That's the funnest thing, isn't it? People are rolling out of their houses in these little huts and these nice houses, everyone. And they're all smiling and running to the court to get their seat. And when we get there, the place is packed. They're hanging in the windows. They're hanging in the rafters. It's just too much. And the noise. You can't even hear yourself think. You make a basket and the war is so bad. It's just good stuff, you know? And so... We went to start the game and we're laying up and everybody, I said to the guys, listen you guys, if the lights go out, you all come to me. I learned this from Nehemiah. When they built the wall, what did they do? When they got attacked, they all came together and they fought back to back instead of spread out. So I said, you come to me and we'll be together to defend ourselves. There's any problem. Yes, sir. So it wasn't five minutes later. The first ball went up and all the lights went out. And all the, you could hear all the going, oh, everybody, oh, that thing, I think it's going to be three days of no lights. So I brought my guys together. You guys okay? Yes, sir. What do we do? I said, what do you do? We pray. Well, what do we pray for? The lights, I think. You guys, the lights are out. Here's the problem. You're laughing, but here's the problem with Americans. They don't think that they can, God can control their lights. They think only they can control the lights, the environment, everything. They think they can do it. But God is much more powerful than anybody else, any single person, any single government or cause. And I said, would you guys mind just trying, praying for the lights to come on? Would you mind? No, we would pray. And so we prayed, and the lights came on. Yeah. And I didn't boast, and I didn't. I said, just thank you, you guys. Now play till the lights go out. If they go out, what do you do? We come back together, Uncle Tom. Yes. So we got through the first quarter, lights went out. Oh, again. And they came around me. And we had a little torch, little um, flashlight, and I put it there, and we prayed. Prayed and prayed, and the lights came on again. And I said, you guys, you might not believe the Lord's putting the lights on, but wouldn't it be prudent if they keep on coming on when we do pray that we keep on praying? Doesn't that make sense? It does. So we got, I said, just get me to halftime, you guys. What do you mean? You guys, if we get to halftime in, then we give the testimonies. We offer the Bible course. We can sign people up in the dark. We can't play basketball, but we need to get the halftime show in because that's what we came for. What is the treasure? It's the word of God. It's the people who come to Christ. And so, sure enough, just before halftime, the lights go out again. I'm so, 
Lord, please, let's let me get my unicycle. I will, I will share really good word today. And, and people started filing out and the lights went out and they all filed back in again. So I gave the halftime testimony. I just gave my own. We didn't have much time to fool around. So I gave my own. I did the halftime show, rode the boy on my shoulders, the whole deal. Everybody was happy. And we started handing out and people started signing up. And the mayor comes down to me. Tomas, I need to speak to you. Sure, you okay? He said, no, I'm not okay. I said, why? He said, you have the power to turn the lights on? (laughs) And I said, there's a trick to that translation, Mayor. Greater is the power that is within me than the power that is against me. There are many more for me than there are against me. I am surrounded by God. But God can turn on the lights if that's what you're asking. He says, I watched you every time you brought the team together. You were praying, weren't you? Yes, sir. You were praying for the lights to come on. Yes, sir. Who thinks of that? What do you think of? Do you often not think to pray about things? Absolutely you don't think of it. Should we be? The Bible says pray about everything with thanksgiving and you you will have the peace beyond understanding. Philippians 4, 6. You know what he said? Tom, I need Jesus. I said, well, you can know Jesus right now. I need to know. So he prayed, accept Christ. And sometimes people's lives are transformed over time and sometimes they're transformed over seconds. And he said, uh, could I interrupt the game to speak? He said, you're the mayor. You can do anything you want. <laughs> he took the microphone. He stood up. He said, everybody listen to me. Now, back story. The pastor who was in that area, he had three people going to his church. His wife and his two killed children. He had three people going to his Christian school. His wife and his three, two kids. She taught, he taught, and two kids. They were trying to have it. And that's why the missionary says, we've got to get something going in there. And so I introduced the pastor to the mayor. And I had done this earlier and what he was doing. The mayor gets up and this is what he does. I want to tell everybody in here, you know what these people did? They prayed and the lights came on. And everybody started clapping. He said they did it three times and they started clapping more. He said, I want to tell you that God is real. And I just accepted Christ as my Savior because I realized I have not been believing in the God that can do anything. And I want everyone here, as your mayor, I want you to try and look at, could you know Christ? Would you consider knowing Christ? I mean, the guy was like Billy Graham. And he's like five minutes old in Christ. And he said, more than that, he said, tomorrow, Pastor, stand up. What's your name, Pastor? Uh, Pastor Nelson, stand up. He didn't even know the guy's name. He said, tomorrow, my family's going to his church. It was a Saturday night. And anyone there here is welcome to join us. And he had a church packed the next day. They couldn't get them all in. They were standing out in the aisles, out front, listening from outside. And he said, and I'm sending my kids to his Christian school so they can learn about Jesus. And you can too. And they couldn't, they had to turn away because they had so many wanted to come to the Christian school. That's treasure. And don't you think that God can't do it in a minute or in the blink of an eye? When we stop thinking that is that's when our faith is lacking. I pray about everything. I don't get all the things I pray for. But when it happens, I'm thankful for it. I know who helped me with it. Does he have to be 100% for you? to have faith he doesn't for me I only need a couple of things once in a while to keep me fired up so I go back we're going back to the hostel we are, we are singing God's song we are so excited because the players know this was a miracle and you know what's great about this story that I can tell you it's a miracle I had over 5,000 witnesses you don't have to listen to me I got 5,000 other people I can bring you and tell you the same story and so we drive into the hostel it's all dark in fact it was dark all the way back down the coast I guess the lights went out for a couple days, finally. And we pulled in and Lucille came out. 
Uh, Uncle Tom, I'm sorry you couldn't play your game. No, we played the game. She said, no, you didn't. I said, what? She said, no, you didn't play the game. Why are you lying to me? I said, Lucille, look at me. I'm soaked. I rode the boy on my shoulders. He peed on my back. Look. I did the game. I did it. She goes, no, you didn't. And the player said, look at us. We're soaking wet. We played the game. What, how, what more can we tell you? Sometimes you can be a witness for Jesus. And no matter how hard you try and convinced you are, you're not going to change their mind. But it's good to try. It's good to try once in a while. I said, why would you say that? It's in the, the, she said, because it's impossible. I said, impossible. Why is it impossible? And she went on to inform me that when the lights go out at her place, the lights go out on the whole island. I said, why? She said, we are our one grid island. One electrical grid. If the lights are out in any place, they're out everywhere. If they're on anywhere, they're on everywhere. There's no here, there are lights. So you couldn't have, because we were, our lights were off. I said, get in the car, I'll take you back. No, what do you need? You need a witness. Back to the mayor. Good witness. Good witness. He, she was intimidated by the mayor. He said, no, the lights were on, we played the game. She, he said, the only reason you won't, don't want to believe, the reason you're not believing is because you don't want to believe. Isn't that true? What do you want to believe? What do you value? I know what this church values. The church souls and missions. Getting other people to know Christ. We can just keep doing that. You've done it for all these years. There's no reason to change. And those of us that have been sent by you, we thank you for it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. This is a great church. I don't care about how many numbers you have or what these... It's still a great church. I've been in China in underground churches that have eight people. Most powerful thing I've ever felt in the spirit in those places. It's not the number, it's the trust. It's understanding where do you value and where's your treasure. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for missions. Thank you for the stories you give us. Not just mine, but all of us. We have a story that you changed our life. And if you're in here today and God has not changed your life through a relationship with Jesus Christ, I highly encourage you to do so. Talk to somebody. And I'll be here afterwards. Or talk to a pastor. Talk to one of the elders. But get your life with the Lord so that you can understand and live the joyful life of true treasure. Not something that's transient and temporary that we're always searching for. This is a great country. I pray for it and I pray that what will make it even greater is more people will come to Christ and tell other people in other places no matter how far away about this glorious, glorious Savior of ours. We are surrounded by you, God. Help us never to forget it. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus and what he's done in our life. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Thanks, Tom. Thank you.